All right, let's take our Bibles out, and we're going to turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. And we begin reading in verse 18. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool upon it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. You know, I was having a conversation with my my daughter Leah and my son Dan the other day, and we were talking about raising children in the faith and what it's like for a child that has been raised in a home that's honoring God, raised in church, raised understanding who Jesus Christ is. And, and because we're recognizing a couple different things. We're recognizing that in order to become a child of God, it takes a born-again experience. There's a moment when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. That can't happen slowly. It, as the Bible describes it, it's a, a birth. It's a moment where all, you were dead in your, your trespasses and sins, the Bible tells us, and then all of a sudden you're alive in Christ. When did that life come into play? But we also recognize that sometimes that can be hard for people to distinguish exactly when that happened. Well, like, for example, we were talking about my grandson Malachi. And Malachi's old enough now, he can memorize Bible verses like crazy. And he's got quite a bit of knowledge about God. And you know what? I'm certain he cannot remember a moment in his life where he didn't believe in the existence of God and he didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God's Son. Now, obviously, he couldn't have been born believing those things because he couldn't understand those things. From the time before he was able to understand those things, he was already being taught those things. And so there wasn't a time where he didn't believe some of those things. But we also recognize that there's a time when everybody has to have like a crisis of faith or a, a, a time where you make that your own. That can be confused. I know we, we used uh, Lisa's example a little bit because Lisa remembers going forward as a child of about nine years old and praying a prayer and went forward with a friend at a church service and, and being taken back to a counseling room, but she doesn't remember what, what she was thinking about at the time, you know, because she was nine years old and it's hard for her to remember or understand. So later on, she committed her life to Christ or recommitted her life to Christ at a, when she was at a Bible institute when she was like 18 or 19. And she wrestled with that and thought, well, did I get saved back when I was nine or did I get saved when I was, was 18 or, you know, when was that? And, and so there can be that little bit of confusion and that kind of thing. And, and the reason we were talking about it was because you want to raise your kids with, well, you want to avoid two extremes. You don't want to, Give your kid the encouragement that they're going to heaven if they're not. You don't want to just assume that they're saved and have them take on the same assumption 
And I don't know if there's any way to foolproof it either completely from your parenting or your teaching of your children, but I just think it's something we have to wrestle with all the time. I know I did that. When I was a kid growing up, I just assumed that I knew God. As long as I can remember, my mom and I prayed at night when she tucked me into bed. And so it just seemed like you always knew God as you were growing up. I didn't have a clue. A lot of things just sailed over my head as far as Jesus Christ dying on that cross for me. I knew He died on the cross. didn't just didn't make the connection to me personally. didn't see where I needed it because I didn't recognize my own sinfulness. And so I was always careful because I thought, you know what, I don't want my kids to just assume that they're saved without them actually experiencing salvation. But at the same time, I know people that struggle with their salvation. I've talked to them, and and Leah was sharing an example with me of somebody that she knows that was was struggling, had struggled for years, constantly afraid that maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm really on the outside. I only feel like I'm on the inside. Maybe God really hasn't forgiven me. And so, on the one hand, you don't want to just assume you're saved when you're not, or you don't want to impact your kids in that way. But on the other hand, you don't want them constantly afraid that maybe they're not really saved either. Because it is a pretty simple formula. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes into your life, changes your life. If you can see that fruit in your life, you can be confident that you're saved because you're believing in Jesus Christ. And that's pretty much the simplicity of the Bible on that message. But you know what? It boils down to this one thing. Access to God. Do I have the access or don't I have the access? Am I, am I on the inside? Have I been delivered of my sins? Am I forgiven? Am I, a, am I a child of God? Or am I still on the outside? And that's what I think we're looking at as we look at the passage here this morning. God has already delivered them from, Exodus, or from Egypt and He is dwelling with them. He's about to start having them make His tent. They're all living in tents. They're going to make His tent, put it right in the middle of the community, and camp around God with Him right in the very center. He's starting to dwell with His people. But let's stop and remember where they're at. They've come to the mountain, and God brings them to the mountain, and then He tells them this. Tell the people, nobody touch the base of the mountain. No people, no animals, nobody God's going to descend upon the mountain and there's going to be lightning and there's going to be thunder and there's going to be smoke from the fire. And Moses is going to be allowed to come up into the presence of God and receive the law. What we saw before we got into the Ten Commandments was Moses went up onto the mountain to be with God. God tells Moses, go back down and tell the people again, don't touch the mountain. Don't try to come up onto the mountain. And Moses says, Lord, we don't need to do that. We already told everybody. We put a boundary, we put a perimeter at the bottom of the mountain to remind them not to go up. We already told everybody, you're going to die if you you go across this line. And so we don't need to do that. God says, just go back down there and tell them. Go back down and do it again. And then it appears that Moses goes back down the mountain to tell them. And then that's when God speaks audibly these Ten Commandments. And so they hear the voice of God. And they're terrified. Because they hear the thunder and they see the lightnings and they hear the voice of God and God says, I have spoke right before you. You've heard it from my voice. And He does that to put the fear in them so that they would honor God with their lives through their obedience. From that moment, Moses is going to go back up onto the mountain and the people are left down. Now, what do we see in that? On one hand, the people in large, they do not have access to God. Right? They can't touch the base of the mountain. They're not allowed to go up into God's presence God came down and gave him a little speech and then he headed back up 
And then Moses is going to go up into God's presence. And so then we see, we do see an access, but it's an access through the person of Moses. So in one sense, access is denied, but in another sense, access is available, but only in certain ways that God has outlined for it to be available. That's the way it still is if you think about it. Because there is absolutely an access to God. In fact, it's a much greater access that we have now. But it is through one narrow path, through one narrow way. They couldn't all find their own way up the mountain to God. They couldn't all find their own truth. God delivered it to them in those Ten Commandments. They couldn't all, in their own creativity, worship God however they wanted to worship God. God would spell that out to them. So in one sense, we see that there is no access. And in another way, we see that there is access, but it's very defined access by God. And it's the same today. We have access to God greatly, but it is through one person, Jesus Christ. And that's what this is pointing to as we go through this passage. But as we consider it, I want to use these two words that are found within the passage. And that is the two words, draw near. Because that's what we're trying to do. That's what Israel really needs to do. I don't know that it's as much Israel's motivation as it is God's, but that's the same in our life too. But God is trying to draw Israel near to Himself. In fact, we see that in the end, what happens is it says that that Israel would, would stand back. It says the people, in verse 21, stood far off. So the people stood far off while Moses drew near. And so Moses is going to draw near, but then the people tell him, let God talk to you, you tell us what He said. And so in other words, Moses is drawing near, but he's drawing near on behalf of the people. It's no coincidence that a little bit later, God's going to say through Moses that there's going to be another prophet that's going to rise like unto Moses. And that, of course, is pointing to Christ. Just as Moses was drawing near for these people, that's what Christ does for us. He drew near to God. And He represents us and brings us before Him. Well, as we consider this idea of drawing near and how we can have this close relationship with God, what is our initial problem that I started with? Either one, we don't want to think that we're close to God, near to being God, and find out that we actually weren't, that it was just something within our emotions or whatever. But at the same time, when we truly do draw near to God, there should be a fruit from that. We should recognize that we're close to God. There should be a confidence in our standing before God. Well, let's see how we can accomplish that. The first thing that we see as we look through the passage is that access is denied. They are not allowed to go up the mountain. They are kept separate from God. You know what the Bible tells us? Isaiah would later tell the people, your sins have separated between you and your God. Your iniquities have hid His face so that He will not hear you. We look up in the New Testament, I think of in Ephesians chapter 2, when he's writing to the Christians there and he starts off with saying, you know what, you used to be dead in your trespasses and sins. Remember back in our, our study earlier on where we recognized that we were no longer living in Eden and that we still weren't living in Eden? Back in the garden? When Adam and Eve rebelled against God and ate the fruit that they weren't supposed to, that rebellion brought sin into the world and it brought a separation between us and God. That day, they were kicked out of the garden. And mankind has not lived back in that garden since. We were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, kicked out of the presence of God. And from that moment on, we've been aiming at the cross to 
rebuild that relationship, to restore, to redeem that relationship, to reconcile us back to God so that we can be back in the presence of God. And now we live in this time period because we got to the cross and Jesus paid for our sin on that cross. And then He rose again from the dead to give us victory over sin. And now we live in this time period that's kind of already but not yet. In other words, we experience the presence of God in a greater level because of the Holy Spirit that indwells us and because of the richness of the revelation that God has given to us in His completed Word. But at the same time, we don't, we don't see Him. We're not face to face as the Apostle Paul said that one day we will be. And that's the time period we live in right now where we have some definite advantages over the past. Christ has already paid for our sin. We're not just having the sacrifices. We know what the ultimate sacrifice was, which was Jesus Christ. But we're still waiting for His return. And at His return, then we will have all of it. So right now, what do we find Israel? Is around the bottom of the, of the mountain? The first thing that we see is, is they are existing within access denied. They do not just have access to God in any way. They cannot just go up to the hill and up the hill and talk to God as they please, and and they cannot just find their own path, find their own way. I've seen illustrations where people have a, a mountain and they got a peak at the top, and up at the top is God, and then you've got all these different paths up the mountain. Mount Sinai is not that mountain. I'm going to tell you, neither is Mount Zion. God is at the at the mountain, and there's one path, and it's not even. You going through the effort to climb it that gets you to God. It's that's the path that Jesus came down. And Jesus is that one and only path. Well, as we look at it here, we see their access denied. Now they're terrified. The promise all the way back to Abraham, the covenant people of God, and they're fearful. Now, in one sense, their fear is not justified. Because Moses tells them, Look, God is an awesome God, so you do need to fear him that way. He's an amazing being that commands our respect. But at the same time, he's saying, look, God didn't come here to kill you. God is delivering you. He's, he's redeeming you. He's dwelling with you. He didn't come here to kill you. You're not going to die. He says, but actually, he did this to put the fear of God in you, to keep you close to him, so that you would be afraid to sin and to do wicked things against God. The Proverbs also give us the same uh, admonition. It says in Proverbs 1, verse 7, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom. And instruction. And you know, I think about that in my own life. You know, it was fear that brought me to Christ. Because I was there one day, I'd been going to church for about a year and a half and hearing the gospel steady, but I got a thick head, so it takes a while to penetrate it. After hearing the gospel for a year and a half, one morning I sat down and all of a sudden it just dawned on me, you're lost. All of a sudden I just knew I was lost. That I wasn't saved. I'd been sitting around a lot of saved people for a year and a half. I'd been listening to a lot of good sermons for a year and a half. I had not put my faith in Christ because I never really recognized that I was bad enough to need Christ to die for my sins. And all of a sudden, I realized, and I was scared. I realized if I die right now, I'm going to hell and I'm going to burn forever. If that doesn't scare you, I don't know what will. But you know what? It was the fear of God that gave me the wisdom to make the right decision right then. Do you want heaven or do you want hell? Do you want God? Do you want to be without God forever? And I embraced Him. In faith. Without that fear, uh, it would not have propelled me to put my faith in Jesus Christ. Why did God create fear within these people? It was for their good. It's the same thing as for not just in our moment of salvation, but in our relationship with God. A fear of God is a good, healthy thing. You know, I remember growing up as a kid, and there were a lot of times that the only reason I didn't do something wrong was for fear of what would happen to me when I got home. 
Now, that was a good fear. That was a healthy fear and a well-founded fear. But you know what? That's the same way with God. God is saying, look, you're my children. That's why I'm putting the fear in you right now. And that's exactly what Moses tells the people. Well, the first thing we see as we come into the passage then, access denied. Don't cross this line or you die. Then also we see access described. The rest of the passage is about them having access to God. You cannot come up the mountain. But then what does God give them in the details? In the details, He says, now, when you go to build an altar, what was an altar about? An altar was about access to God. It was about coming to God, to worship God and to offer your sacrifices to God. And it mentions a couple of those sacrifices. And it mentions a couple of the animals that get offered up as sacrifices. And so, He doesn't get into a lot of detail there, and we're not going to either. But he says, look, you're going you're gonna to build altars and those altars will be the places where you come and you access Me. And so in one sense, access is denied. God says, look, stop. But then He details for them a way that you can have access to God. And He describes it. When you look through this passage, it's very clear that God is in control of who accesses Him and how that access takes place. Notice God points out, He says, whenever you build an altar on the place that I decide to be remembered. Israel is living in the wilderness. And they're going to be living in tents, traveling around with God. And so there's going to be altars built at many places in the wilderness wherever God tells them to stop. Remember, He's leading them with the presence of a cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And wherever God stops, so He's deciding where they stop, and He's deciding where they're going to build the altars, and where His name is going to be remembered among them, and where He's going to bless them. And so He's making those decisions. He's telling them what to make the altar out of. He says, look, don't go having those gods of gold and silver and your altars. Don't go fashioning your altars and making them all fancy either. You're going to make them out of dirt. You're going to make them out of the ground. And if you use stones, you're going to use stones that you're not going to swing a hammer on. So God is the one describing exactly how these people are going to access Him. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. As you go farther into the book and farther through the books of Moses, God gives very specific detail on exactly how you access God. Because there's going to be a priesthood that's in place. And the priest's clothes are going to be very detailed on exactly what the priests wear when they come before God. And exactly what the sacrifices are when they come before God. And how they offer them. And then when they build the tabernacle and the furniture with inside the tabernacle, it's going to be full of a lot of detail. So much detail that when you're having your devotions, this isn't exactly the place where you love to read. And I think that's for a reason. I think it has a, there's a lot of value in it, but it's not for a light devotional moment. But what do we see in all this is that God is in control of all the things. He is telling us how we will access Him. He's accomplishing it for us. Well, as we consider this, there's about three different things that I see as God provides this access for us or describes it. First of all, is through a mediator. God tells Moses, come up on the mountain. The people recognize the need for a mediator because they say, Moses, don't let God speak to us. You go talk to God. And it's going to be like that. It's not going to be Moses forever. It's going to become a high priest. And a high priest is going to be going before God and offering the sacrifices for the people of Israel. It's going to be, it's going to all be done through a mediator. And it's still that way today. The only way that we have access to God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. 
It's not through religion. It's not through keeping a bunch of moral precepts and rules. It is through His Son who offered Himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. And we have wonderful access to God because of that. Because He is our mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Also, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Our salvation comes only through the name of Christ as He died on that cross for us. Well, closely related to this is the idea of sacrifice. You see, access to God was accomplished through a mediator, which was Moses going up on the hill. Christ going to that cross for us. Now also, it involves sacrifice. The altar is for sacrificing. It's for offering up the blood of these animals to pay for the sins of the people. Sacrifice is necessary. The Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You see, it talks about the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. And He did that to do what? To bring us to God. Our drawing near to God takes the death and the resurrection of Christ. It takes that ultimate, once for all, sacrifice. When you think of these two things together, and they really do need to be thought together that way, the fact that Jesus Christ on our behalf as our mediator, as our high priest, would go and offer Himself as a sacrifice for our sins, that's exactly where the answer to our first question comes in. You see, that's where we recognize that there is no salvation outside of Him. Uh, There's no way that I can feel comfortable like I have some kind of access to God that doesn't go through Jesus because He's the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by Him. And at the same time, feel completely comfortable, very secure in my salvation because my access to God is at such a level that it should cleanse my conscience It should make me feel at home in my relationship with Him. And we find that all deeply discussed within the book of Hebrews. There's lots of key words that are used in Hebrews. The word better, because Jesus is looked at as seen as a better sacrifice. He's a better high priest. has a better covenant. One of the phrases that we see repeated is this idea of drawing near. Drawing near to God, just as we see pointed out back in Exodus, that Moses drew near. He's drawn near on the behalf of the people. Jesus Christ drew near for us. We get to draw near in Him. And in Hebrews, we see the first place that that props up in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And it says, since then, we have a great high priest. Because a lot of, a lot of Hebrews is looking back at the old priesthood that they had in Aaron and his sons offering the sacrifices for the people, comparing that to the priesthood that Jesus has as our great high priest. Aaron's high priest, temporary, pointed to the real deal. In fact, it's called in the, in, in the book of Hebrews, it's sometimes called a, a copy or a shadow or a pattern of the real one that was to come, which is Christ. Well, in doing that, 
He comes to a point in chapter 4 where he says, Since then we have a great high priest, talking about Christ, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. It's not a confidence in yourself. It's not that you've lived good enough, that you've done good enough, that you've kept the Ten Commandments good enough, that you've lived good enough rule. If the Ten Commandments do anything, it helps you recognize that you're still at the base of the mountain and can't touch it. But he says, let's not look at that. Let's look at Christ. Christ is the one that's gone up before you. Christ is the one that laid down His life for you. He's your mediator that brings you to God, that took your curse upon Himself, that took your suffering upon Himself, your death upon Himself. And now He's saying, look at your high priest and recognize that now you can come boldly, confidently before God's presence. You're not at the base of the mountain anymore. He says you can come boldly up to the presence of God without any fear of death or reprisal or rebuke because of what Jesus Christ did for you. He's encouraging these people to hang on to Christ because it's in Him that you have full and complete access to God. No more access denied. Well, then in Hebrews chapter 7, at this point, he's, he kind of does a comparison. I'm not going to get too deep into it because it would take too much time. But he's saying, look, if you really want to compare Christ to a priest, look not even at Aaron, who that was a picture of Christ also, and Aaron's priesthood. He says, but look at Melchizedek. Melchizedek has some things. Melchizedek's a mysterious character from the Old Testament. If you go back into our studies in Genesis, you'll find him there and where we dealt with him more in detail. We're not going to get too much farther into that right now. But it's at that point he's been comparing Christ and Melchizedek and still talking about Christ's priesthood. And he says in chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The law foreshadowed it, but it never made everything perfect. It never never cleansed their conscience. He's going to start comparing the frequency of their sacrifices. And he's going to say, look, if their sacrifice worked, why did they have to keep doing it? Because every year they had to do it over and over and over again. He says, why? Because their sacrifice didn't work. Had to redo it. He's going to say the same thing about the priests. He's saying, why do they keep having priest after priest after priest? You want to know why? Because their high priest kept dying. So obviously they're not the answer either. And then he's going to point to Jesus and he's saying, looking at Jesus, one sacrifice, done. Why? It was good enough. One high priest, no more. Just the one. Why? Because through his power of everlasting life and his resurrection from the dead, he remains our priest forever. A few verses later, it says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, it says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. I love that. There's a passage in chapter 10, I think it's about verse 14 of the book of Hebrews, that says if you get a hold of the truth of how completely you are forgiven in Him, your conscience will be clean. 
You can't find that in priests that die on you. And you can't find that in sacrifices that last a year. But you can have it in the priest who died once to pay for all of it and goes on living on your behalf. That's the confidence that we have in Christ. Then the last draw near in the book of Hebrews is found in chapter 11, verse 6. It tells us how we appropriate this. In chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Is through faith. Which brings us to our last point. It is also through grace. And the reason that I say this is because on God's instruction in building the altar. He says, you're not even going to cut the stones. If you're going to make an altar, you're going to make it out of earth. If you're going to use stones within it, no carving the stones. Just stack them up. What is the point of that? I think the point of that is simplicity. God tells him, if you wield a hammer on that stone, you profane it. If you add your works to your salvation, it's not salvation. Well, Christ, when He hung on a cross, He said, it is finished. It's done. All the work is done. If we try to add our works to His works to accomplish our salvation, we've just profaned His work on the cross. The achievement that happens on the altar is not in the altar itself. It's on the sacrifice that's laid on the altar. You know what this description of the altar reminds me of? It reminds me of the cross. The cross is what? Two simple beams. I think of the hymn. The old rugged cross, because that's absolutely what it was. You wouldn't look at the event of the cross and think there was some ornate worshiping of God in any sense of the imagination. But God was just in simplicity accomplishing for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves, which was access to Him.